David Murren specialises in utilising the past to predict the future. He's an accomplished public speaker, hedge fund manager, and market trader. To date, he's authored three books, Breaking the Code of History, Lions Led by Lions, and now or never the Global Forecast UK Strategic Defence Review 2020. His fourth, The Road to Wars, is due to come out in 2021. He also writes a blog on his website, www.davidmurrin.co.uk, where more can be found on his life, views and work. Hi there, and welcome to The State of It. I'm sitting here with my dad, David Murren. Say hi, Dad. Hi, Winnie. He just spent the last five minutes complaining to me about how he's tired, but we're going to do this anyway. <laughs> Isn't that right, Dad? It's like being in her Stormvone Führer's podcast camp. <laughs> what? That is an awful analogy. You can't use that analogy. We're going to have another argument about wokeness, but it's fine. We're going to move on. So today, our podcast is going to focus on Russia, having tackled China in the last one. So, Dad, my first question to you. Putin has been involved in the highest tier of Russian politics for a little over 20 years. Do you think he'll be in power for more decades to come? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's important to understand where and what drives the Russian economy. And Russia is essentially a commodity-based society. And it was a commodity base that supported the USSR and its communist regime, such that at the peak of the commodity cycle in 75, that was when it looked like the USSR was going to be successful in taking over the world. And the consumer competition in the form of the West meant that it was going to take um, and be difficult to challenge and be threatened. We're at the commodity cycle low, or were last year, there's a secondary low to come up before we end up with five years of hyperinflation. And I've maintained that actually due to that cycle and the kleptomania of the Putin regime and the cohorts around him, coupled with the pandemic, he's probably at his least popularity level because that pyramidal structure which feeds the kleptocracy with him at the top means the people at the bottom are struggling economically. And the pandemic will have exacerbated that. And so I think he's most vulnerable in the next six months to, to nine months. If he survives that period, then yes, I think he'll be there for another 10 years. Uh, there are some rumours that he's not well, but you know whether they're substantiated or not, we're not sure. I think his uh, aggressive actions towards his political competitor, probably the biggest threat he faces uh, with the use of Novichok, um, it says an awful lot about the threat that he feels from that particular quarter. And I think if he continues to mismanage it, he'll make a, a, the threat bigger and it'll become harder. And especially if the pandemic you know, continues to make more and more impact in Russia. Talking about the Russian government now as a whole, what are your thoughts on them? Look, Russia's a fascinating country in that it is a sort of, we talked about it in the other podcast really, it's a sort of duality between a westernism and the focus on individuality. It's highly creative and scientific. Um, and it also has an eastern sort of collectivism about it in that duality. In, in that means it can straddle the West and the East. It has very valuable value to both in that to the East, you know, it helps China understand the West and to the West, it helps us understand the Chinese because we think we know them, but I don't think we know them as well as we, we could do. Um, and, and so they sit in that situation at the moment. Putin, who's very anti-Western 
And I can see some of his reasons why. The humiliation the West visited upon Russia when the Cold War collapsed. They didn't treat it like it was a a, a valiant, honourable foe that had fallen. They stomped all over it. And they begat the conditions which then let Putin rise. Um, They didn't really help at all. So I I can see why he feels so resentful. And I don't think we've we've done, you know, it's not as if we're whiter than white. The issues that took place over the Ukraine that we forget is that it was the Obama administration that precipitated um, a a democratic, democratically elected government from being overturned that was pro-Russian. And it sat in the strategic underbelly of Russia that meant that Putin had to act. So I think the Ukraine was of our own making through EU and American tinkering. And we pushed him further away from us. And we pushed him then towards the Chinese. And after all, they do potentially have a rather perfect match made in heaven because the Russians produce commodities and the Chinese need commodities. And they have a land interface so no one can interfere with it. So strategically, pushing Russia towards China was the biggest cock up you could ever have in terms of geopolitics for the West. How similar is the current Russian government to the government in place during the Soviet Union? Um, I think it has similarities in that the DNA of the Russian people accepts hierarchical control. Um, when you say DNA, what just I think social can you elaborate on that idea. It's the idea that the people in social systems have a propensity to, you know, through the conditioning of being brought up in it, accepting it. So, democracy isn't something naturally people turn to. Hierarchical control and leadership is something that all land powers have seen since the dawn of time. And and funny enough, democracy through maritime um, development, I think, has been the new new iteration over thousands of years since since Athens, which marks a change in human evolution. So, So when we went to Iraq and assumed they were going to like democracy, we were on drugs because it was a land-based country that really democracy wasn't a natural process for. They elect Putin because there's only one person to elect. You know, there's some amusing things about that. So, so there's a sort of, there's a shift towards the words of democracy in Russia, but it isn't. It's a hierarchy. I have to say, I, I disagree with your your DNA idea. I think that that's not in some, that that's not in a person's DNA. I think it's much more cultural. I think if you're brought up in an environment that is very controlling, very constrictive, like a Big Brother esque kind of environment, that is not very free, it's just what you've grown up being used to. I don't think it's within someone's DNA because then that implies also that democracy is in someone's DNA. I completely agree with you. Fantastic. Okay, that was easy, wasn't it? <laughs> but actually, there's some subtleties there, having seen my son's face sort of enter a moment of surprise. By DNA, I, I mean, um, it's quite interesting because um, I think there's a balance in societies between right and left brained shifts. And land societies, that are, their communities are always connected, um, are far more collective in the way they operate. So Europe is a more collective. It's not just culturally that Britain is different. Britain is an island maritime heritage infused, funnily enough, with an awful lot of immigration that's less so. So less of that iteration now is global Britain than it was many hundreds of years ago. But the concept remains. So land powers systems tend to have more left brain dynamics and and maritime powers tend to have more right brain dynamics. And the reason is if you interact with the sea, you, your DNA actually is such as you are conditioned to think and act differently because the environment is multifaceted and constantly changes. 
Whereas if you operate in a field, it's either wet, dry, sunny or windy. The permutations are fewer. If you operate as a fisherman out to sea, there are a host of variables you have to compensate for. So there is an adaptation issue here underneath my facetiousness of the term DNA, which I think goes to the root of where democracies came from. And then after they arrive then you can you can code them in so india for example is a is a continental system which has been had had democracy coded in by being exposed through the british empire and and its occupation in the colonial terms and it was one of the legacies that britain left india but again i i, I feel as if it's cultural like you're talking about seafaring it's, it's, it's a combination seafaring people and a commercial land based people and i do agree i think seafaring people slightly more individualistic, look at Athens, look at Britain and Britain's empire. Um, not necessarily all the time, because there have been some huge land-based empires as well. But it's cultural. It, it's something that's passed down from generation to generation. It doesn't alter the DNA. But, the DNA of Russians and the DNA of, of I don't know, an island, uh, the Irish, are not different. That's, that's it's, what, it's culturally that, different. And I think there is a cultural difference, but it's reinforced by the environmental, environmental adaptations. There's a good reason why Britain became the first great maritime power. Our ratio of coastline to internal volume was very high. The majority of people in our population were exposed to the sea and the vagaries of the sea, which were non-linear and therefore made people adapted to think and act in an environment that constantly changed. If you lived in the interior of England, you didn't travel to the coast, you could believe that actually it was quite constant because it's a different environment. So I think there's, there's a, then it's reinforced by behaviours, but how environments shaped outcomes and optimisation of thought processes and our systems have the legacies of that even now which is why i go back to russia has always been a land power and it quickly you know went back to what it's familiar with which was hierarchical control which putin assumed and has had ever since britain has been the way it has for millions of years geographically no but geographically it's been an island oh not millions sorry but geographically it's been an island for many thousands of years but really britain's only risen to prominence in the past three, four hundred, as a result of sea power. So why was Britain not a prominent power so, so, if, okay. the, if it's in the DNA of seafarers so, 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 before then? So, so let's just think of... You've got a bit off topic with Russia, okay, but, but, but go on. So let's just think about this. If you build a castle with a huge perimeter, but your garrison is small and you can't garrison those walls, then essentially that castle becomes a liability because you don't have the population to defend it. Think of Britain's coastline like the perimeter of a castle, and only at a critical level when our population became significant enough did we have the capacity to defend that coastline. That coastline, that wall you build in your castle, now becomes a huge advantage because you have a natural wall and you have enough people behind it to basically defend it. And the way we defended it by was out to sea, with a, with you know not just on the coast, but by not stopping people from getting to our coast. So it's very natural to think that only in the Elizabethan era, when the population moved into more than a few millions, did it suddenly become an advantage. And by the time we reached the you know the period of Trafalgar, we could fund, build, operate the biggest, greatest navy in the world, which meant no one could come close to us. So I think if it's a point of critical, a critical point at which a topographical feature was a disadvantage and it became an advantage. Moving back to Russia now. <laughs> Russia is traditionally a commodity-based economy. Do you think it's economically robust and will it be in the future? I think it's still an economically, it's still a commodity-based society. So in the next five years, so it, it, from the perspective of Putin, I would say to him, if I was his advisor, you've got to hang on for the next year, because once you get through the next year, that the economics of Russia will only improve. 
and your situation will improve. And if I was advising a Western leader, I would say now is the time to make the rapprochement with, with Putin, draw him away from, from China, recognizing that he's in a state of vulnerability economically, and at the same time, recognizing that um, does he really want at the end of World War Three to be left with only China in the world as his partner, because he knows he's vulnerable too. So I would use those two dualities to bring him to the table and discuss a new way of relating. Um, and I th view him very much as a bad boy that actually is bad partly by the position he occupies and giving him an out, giving him other ways to do this, I think is really critical for the security of the West because it means that we can then surround um, China and it means that Europe becomes a safe haven zone rather than just another combatant zone if the Russians engage with us. In September, the Secretary General of NATO warned that Russia was risking a new Cold War as it was trying to push a power beyond its borders. And we're seeing a rise of Russian expansion. I mean, NATO said that in 2020, Russian jet activity increased from 2019 and we're seeing Russian warships circling British coastlines in December. Nine Russian warships circled the British Isles. Do you think Russia poses a threat to Western Europe? Yeah, right I, I, I do. I think... I think that Russian uh, weapon development is highly innovative and they're very creative. You know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as in the West, you know, having all the answers and being superior. But if you look at the evolution of their hypersonic weapons, which can kill ships, you look at their Status 6, which is a nuclear torpedo launched from a big submarine. It's 70 foot long, has a nuclear reactor, travels 10,000 miles and delivers a five megaton warhead to someone's harbour like New York, London, a coastal city. It was designed to overcome the ballistic missile defences that America was deploying itself. It was designed to rebalance the nuclear deterrent of mutual assured destruction. Very, very innovative. They're, 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 and their warships are increasingly so. Their submarines are quieter. Next to the West, you know, they are a real threat. They're still a threat. They've developed forms of warfare that seek to go and cut sub underwater cables across the Atlantic and communication choke points. So, so Putin is looking to use what is really quite a limited budget compared to America with great leverage. And he's introduced into his fleet quiet submarines, which have the potential of closing off trade routes. And he's constantly probing Western borders with aeroplanes and ships, testing the intention of NATO to react and gaining information about how we react. And and there's a very good thing that I've never really forgotten, which is, you know, all on the whole, apart from express kidnap, most kidnaps and robberies require a certain amount of reconnaissance sometimes up to 90 hours on average. So you don't suddenly get kidnapped. Someone's watching you for 90 hours. Any form of activity that require, that perceives test, reconnaissance, learning about how you operate is an aggressive act by definition. And I think probably the most aggressive and concerning areas are the breakdown of the barriers around mutually assured destruction, which meant that if you use a biological, chemical or nuclear weapon, you got one back on your doorstep. And uh, the whole strategy of first use is changing in Russian. So the Russians have a, have a model whereby they take um, a, a piece of land like Kalingrad or um, they occupy it. They wait until NATO marshals its forces to take it back and they nuke it. They turn around and say, if you nuke us, we'll destroy you completely. And that's a test of intention because what does a Western leader do? They think, oh, well, if I nuke you, we're all going to be dead. But it doesn't work, so I just accept what you've taken. You've taken a chunk out of me and I can't do anything about it. So there are all sorts of strategies like that that you see the Russia evolving. And one of them is the use of Novichok in Salisbury and, you know, against um, 
political opposition, which shows a complete disregard for the coding of, of weapons of mass destruction. So he is breaking down those barriers that protected us in the Cold War intentionally. And he's seeking the point at which the West don't have the intention politically to act and he can gain advantage. So strong political leadership that understands this is critical for deterrence. Militarily speaking, Russia has always fielded quite a large army because of their large population. Currently, they have five times the number of active personnel Britain employs and six times the number of ships. Though their numbers are large, do you think Britain can match Russia for technology? Well, you know, I think if we went into a shooting war with their navy, our surface ships would have a real problem because the range of their anti-ship missiles is further than our harpoons. So I think we do have all sorts of challenges that you know, that are harder than they should be to counter. Just to clarify, harpoons are missiles. Harpo- harpoon is a ship-launched missile Not designed like a to kill. Whaling harpoon. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> from the ship. From a steam gun. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Win. Um, and and so our weapon systems, ship to ship, are you know outranged. Our submarines are far better. Well, they're better, but the margin is is an interesting one. Um, and so, yes, I think we would be struggling. And what's really interesting is that Russia has maintained a large tank army. And in NATO, we've decided that, you know, tanks are less applicable and armoured formations. So we are at threat from land invasion by something they don't have. And it requires air power to counter. Now, it's all very well saying America will reinforce us in NATO. But if it's preoccupied by a Chinese problem, that may not happen. But you said something about air power there. Their combat aircraft outnumber ours by six and a half times. Yes, but it comes down to capability. I mean, an F-35 is a very, very capable um, multi-role aeroplane. What most people don't realize is it's not the best air-to-air fighter. An F-22 is the best air-to-air fighter. And and if the Americans deployed squadrons of F-22s, they'd be knocking Russian planes out of the sky faster than you could count them. The Russians operate very effective ground-based missile systems that go out to 400 and 500 kilometers. So we have a problem operating in the air defense screens. But in the end, I think that balance would be won by NATO even if America was distracted by China at present. But for, for their spending, they really do punch quite a quite a threat. And don't forget, they have the nuclear reserves and capabilities to wipe out the world multifold. So as a nuclear power, they haven't really stepped back and they have considerable destructive power at their disposal if they wish to end the world. So you're saying that conventionally, their technology is a match for ours. and In some areas. In what area specifically? Um, Surface-to-service ship capabilities, um, in, 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 in ground warfare, traditional ground warfare. Um, they're in, in air-to-air combat, perhaps less so, um, and undersea warfare um, would require significant attention to be closed off. But nuclear warfare, are we on par? No, they have... 7,000 warheads. <laughs> you know, Britain operates not more than 180. Are their warheads out of date or are they no, advanced? They, 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 no, they, they would still blow up with a large mushroom cloud <laughs> and dig a very large hole underneath them. Happy thoughts, happy <laughs> thoughts. So basically, we're either on par or outmatched. Uh, it's an awful lot more um, challenging. And if you look at the Royal Navy's, look at the Royal Navy's 
in a response to these nine ship incursions. And, you know, not just the ship incursions, but we've had to borrow other countries' ASW aeroplanes to hunt their submarines hunting ours. We've had to borrow NATO assets because we can't do it ourselves. So I, I, I think that Britain is, you know, is poorly, poorly positioned and we should be far, far better positioned than we are. Moving on to Sino-Russian relations, do you think a Sino-Russian military alliance is a real possibility? I think it's already with us. That was a quick answer. Can you elaborate? Um, greater coordination of exercises, um, the most critical piece of the puzzle, showing Putin's intent towards the alliance structure with, with China that really rings alarm bells, is um, jet development and fighter jet technology is a complex rear area because you've got to integrate it with the, with the airframe. And the Chinese really don't have effective jets. They have built airframes like the, their, their stealth fighter, and it awaits a new power plant that then makes the plane come alive. And the Russians have started through Sukhoi offering some of their latest jet engines to the Chinese. Now, if Putin was viewing the partnership as a short-term relationship of convenience, he wouldn't be giving them such a strategic advantage. So I fear that he has made a long-term commitment to the Chinese. Is it too late to bring Russia or China back into the Western fold and have better relations? Or has the world already bifurcated? Bifurcated. That's the one. Um, With China, it's too late. They're committed to a path of aggression. And they're encouraged by the weak response of the West to the pandemic and the incipient response to any of their advances and expansionary moments. To Russia, less so. I think that really it should be a foreign policy focus to bring Russia back into the Western fold, to find a way to reintegrate it and to surround China. And that should be the number one foreign policy imperative. And Britain holds a large part of this because we view him as morally corrupt, which, you know, understandably, when our values perceive his way of operation, we judge him in a way that we can't do business with him. But I think we should go back to a time when Stalin, who was a quanta more um, unpalatable, was brought into the Western fold when he was attacked by Germany because we had a common enemy. And I think we should think much more strategically about our relationship with Russia and we should you know, basically depolarize the extent to which we're at the opposite sides of the table. Final question now, don't worry, almost at the end. What are your predictions regarding Russia over the next decade? Well, I think the next year will be tricky. Um, If Putin survives that, then Russia will become much wealthier with the resources. It will sell the rest of the consumer world, predominantly China. It will spend that money militarily to increase its advantages, and it will become increasingly belligerent and assertive. So unless the West takes a different tack, we face a much more aggressive traditional enemy like the Cold War on our doorstep. And that is something which we have enough problems containing China. Splitting Russia from China has to be the number one prerogative of Western politicians with even a drop of vision. That's it from us, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Winnie. Glad you can say the word bifurcate after this. Thank you. Well, I don't make fun of you when you can't pronounce stuff. That's, that's me. Guys, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, go to www.davidmurrin.co.uk, spelt with two R's, and we'll feature them on the next episode. Give them an email. Thanks. <laughs>